Thanks for being part of Parkside Green's Bible study. Uh, Pastor Steve here, looking forward to continuing our study through the Gospel of Luke, where this week Jesus embarks on his journey to Jerusalem. Uh, at some time or another, I guess all of us have had some kind of memorable journey. Uh, I, I think back to the summer of 1973 when I was a 10-year-old kid and our family took the big drive out west. Uh, it had its low points along the way, like when my mom got out of the car and threatened quite seriously to fly home alone and let the rest of us drive on without her. <laughs> that shook us back into line pretty quickly. Uh, one night, I remember going down the Pacific Coast Highway, and the fog was so dense, we literally could not see five feet in front of us. And my dad daringly turned the car around blindly on this two-lane highway. We ended up staying in a sketchy hotel room. It had just one bed for the five of us at $5 a night. I kid you not, $5. And Dad stayed at the window all night watching our car to make sure that uh, it was safe. Then there was a side trip to Hollywood and Disneyland, uh, very memorable, as was our drive through the Mojave Desert at nighttime. That fascinated me as a kid. But the journey of all journeys, without a doubt, was Jesus's journey to Jerusalem. So far in Luke's account, right, Jesus has been ministering in the northern region of Galilee, and now Jesus is setting his face to head south to Jerusalem. What a journey. It will be over the next 10 chapters from Luke 9 to Luke 19. This week, at the start of his journey, we'll see Jesus encounter rash judgment in chapter 9, verses 52 to 56, half-heartedness in chapter 9, verses 57 to 62, growing mission in chapter 10, verses 1 to 12, and mixed response in chapter 10, verses 13 to 24. It all starts in Luke 9, verse 51, where we are told that the days were drawing near for Jesus to be taken up, and he sets his face to go to Jerusalem. Earlier in the chapter, remember Jesus had spoken with Moses and Elijah about his departure, which he would accomplish at Jerusalem. And the time has now come for Jesus to set his face with steely determination to fulfill his purpose at Jerusalem. It echoes what is said in Isaiah 50, verse 7, about the servant of the Lord setting his face like flint. And geographically, the straightest line from Galilee to Jerusalem is through Samaria. So Jesus sent messengers ahead of him to enter a Samaritan village and make preparations for him to stay there. But as we know from Jesus' interactions with the Samaritan woman in John 4, Samaritans did not accept Jerusalem as the place to worship God. The, the Samaritans had their own place to worship God, a temple they had built on Mount Gerizim. So they did not want to provide housing for a Jewish teacher who was on his way to Jerusalem. Mark 3.17 tells us that Jesus had nicknamed his two disciples, these brothers, the sons of Zebedee, James and John, sons of thunder. <laughs> and we can see why. They want to call down fire from heaven to consume those Samaritans that did not receive Jesus. Maybe kind of like a Sodom and Gomorrah type thing or, or like what Elijah did in 2 Kings 1. But Jesus saw this as a rash judgment, a rash 
judgment, and he rebuked these impulsive brothers. After all, John 3.17 tells us Jesus did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus' journey to Jerusalem would not involve rash judgment. So he and his followers simply went on to another village. And remember, every step along the way in this journey was a step closer to Jesus' death, which takes us to our second section on half-heartedness. You see, as they were going along the road, a man boldly promised Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. But Jesus challenges this would-be follower to consider the cost of following a poor rabbi who was on the move. Do you grasp what it means to follow me wherever I go? Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Following Jesus won't be easy, it won't be comfortable, Unlike animals that at least have a place to dwell, whether it's a hole in the ground or a nest in the tree, Jesus does not have a place to lay his head. There is no house waiting for him with a cushy bed and a nice pillow. Even when he sought to be a guest at someone else's house, the Samaritan village rejected him. So count the costs of what following me entails. On the same journey, Jesus called another man to follow him, but this would-be follower requested first to go and bury his father. Now, his dad may have been on the verge of death, or, or maybe he wanted to finish the secondary burial that took place usually about a year after the initial burial. We don't know the details, but it's certainly right to want to honor your father and mother. And yet, following Jesus must be an even higher priority. Those who are spiritually dead can bury their own dead, but Jesus was calling this man to leave his family and go and proclaim the kingdom of God. See, even a good thing must not usurp the best thing. We must set aside anything that would hinder our full commitment to following Jesus first, not second. And on the journey to Jerusalem, a third man promised to follow Jesus, but he first wanted to say farewell to those at his home. Jesus explained to the man that following him would not allow any turning back. Right? When a farmer puts his hand to the plow, he has to find a fixed point ahead of him to keep the plow line straight. And if he looks back while he's still walking forward, He's going to veer off course, going to make a mess with, with crooked plow lines. So if you're going to follow Jesus, you cannot be half-hearted. Now, interestingly, we aren't told how it ended with any of these three men. Or it leaves us to ponder how we might have responded in their places. Am I half-hearted or wholehearted in following Jesus? That brings us to our third section in Jesus' journey to Jerusalem, which describes his growing mission. Growing mission. At the start of chapter 9, he had sent out his 12 apostles. Now, at the start of chapter 10, he appoints 70 or 72 unnamed others to go ahead of him. 
the Lord sent them in pairs, maybe for mutual support or as two confirming witnesses, perhaps, to all the towns and places where Jesus was heading on his journey. Jesus knew there was a plentiful harvest ahead, so he sent out six dozen laborers ahead of him, and he told the 72 to pray for the Lord to send out even more laborers into his harvest. It's God's harvest. Jesus tells the 72 he's sending them out as lambs in the midst of wolves. They, they can expect to meet danger and opposition. And like the 12 apostles earlier, they are to depend fully on God to provide for them through the people to whom they minister. They're not supposed to take a stash of money or, or food or extra clothes. They're not to get sidetracked by random conversations on the road. Rather, they are to remain laser-focused on their mission, staying in whatever homes welcome them and contentedly eating and drinking whatever their hosts provide. As the 72 then bring Jesus' peace into these homes, those who are aligned with Jesus' mission, sons of peace, they're called, will receive the peace. And those who are not aligned with Jesus' peace will not receive it. The twofold mission of the 72 is to heal the sick and to tell people that the kingdom of God has come near them. In fact, think about it. When Jesus arrives in those towns later, the king himself will be right there with them. Yes, the kingdom of God has come near. And God's kingdom isn't a political or, or military kingdom. It's God's rule and reign in people's hearts and lives. God's kingdom is his rule and reign in people's hearts and lives. And if the towns won't receive that message of God's kingdom, then the 72 are to publicly warn them that they have rejected God's kingdom that has come near. Jesus' followers, they don't call down God's judgment on people like James and John wanted to, but they are to warn people. Because on the day of judgment, Jesus says, it's going to be more bearable for Sodom, which was destroyed by fire and brimstone, you remember, than for that town that rejects the Messiah's messengers. With their increased exposure to God's revelation comes increased responsibility for what they do with it, accepting it or rejecting it. And this leads to our final section in verses 13 to 24, where we see how Jesus' Jesus's mission meets with a mixed response. Mixed response. Jesus pronounces a woe on the towns of Chorazin and Bethsaida, which was the towns nearest to where Jesus fed the 5,000. And Jesus declares, if those mighty works that were done in those Israelite cities had been done in the Gentile cities of Tyre and Sidon, which are often condemned by Old Testament prophets, those Gentiles would have repented long ago. They, they would have mourned over their sin by sitting in sackcloth and ashes. And Jesus speaks his harshest words against Capernaum. You may recall in Luke 4 that Jesus taught in the synagogue of Capernaum and he healed everyone who was sick there. And then in Luke 7, when Jesus entered Capernaum, the Jewish elders pleaded with Jesus to heal a servant of the centurion who had helped them build their synagogue. Because so many in Capernaum witnessed Jesus' ministry and yet rejected him, they are not going to be exalted to heaven they will be brought down 
to Hades. The one who hears Jesus' representative hears Jesus. And the one who rejects Jesus' representative is really rejecting Jesus, which is also a way of rejecting the one who sent Jesus, God the Father. That mixed response to Jesus, then, it does include a downside of judgment for those who reject him. But we also see an upside when the 72 return to Jesus with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Uh, the 72 weren't burned out from their mission. They were joyful about it. And unlike the disciples, who you remember could not cast out an unclean spirit in chapter 9, the 72 are pumped. There's a report that the demons were subject to them as they ministered in Jesus' name. And Jesus says that as the 72 ministered, Jesus himself could see in the spiritual realm that Satan was falling like lightning from heaven as God's people carry out their mission faithfully. Satan falls. Jesus had given the 72 authority over all the power of the enemy and nothing, including serpents and scorpions, would hurt them in any ultimate way. Jesus then cautions these excited missionaries that that gift of spiritual power, that's great, but the gift of having your name written in heaven is even greater cause to rejoice. A Christian's biggest joy comes from being part of God's eternal kingdom. At that very hour, when Jesus heard the reports of the 72, Jesus himself rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. Wouldn't you have loved to have seen that? Jesus himself rejoicing in the Holy Spirit and thanking the Father, the, the Lord of heaven and earth, for hiding these things from so-called wise and understanding who rejected Jesus' representatives and instead revealing them to little children. The whole Trinity is there in verse 21. Jesus rejoices in the Spirit and thanks the Father for concealing from the supposedly wise and understanding of this world and revealing to little children, those with childlike faith in Jesus. That was God's gracious will. God the Father bestows grace on whom he will, and he hands all things over to Jesus. No one knows who the Son is except the Father. They, they have a unique relationship, and no one knows who the Father is except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Profound truths. Then turning the disciples, probably meaning the twelve here, Jesus said to them privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. You think about how for centuries, Faithful Israelite prophets like Jeremiah and Isaiah and noteworthy Israelite kings like David and Josiah desired to see and to hear the Messiah. The disciples here are enjoying a special privilege of, of seeing and hearing God's long-awaited Messiah in action. And similarly, we who have access to God's word are blessed to read the words and deeds of Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. Yet even today, among those who hear of Jesus, there's a mixed response. There are always acceptors who follow, 
and rejectors who walk away. Jesus' journey to Jerusalem has now begun, and it has many rich lessons for us. As we consider applying these lessons to our lives today, think about these three possibilities. There are many others as well. Number one, praise Jesus. Praise Jesus that knowing full well he would suffer many things and be killed, he set his face to go and die in Jerusalem. Secondly, prioritize Jesus. Put Jesus first over comfort and, and even our family as need be. Prioritize Jesus by following him with our whole hearts. Thirdly, rejoice in heaven. Rejoice that Jesus has graciously revealed the Father to you. And if you trust in Jesus and follow him, your name is written in heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for sending your son Jesus, who knew the suffering that awaited him, but he set his face with steely determination to go to Jerusalem to die in our place. We don't want to follow Jesus in a half-hearted way. So, Father, would you help us to keep our hand to the plow and not look back to anything that would distract us from putting your kingdom first? Lastly, we praise you for granting us the gift of faith in Jesus so that our names are written in heaven. It's through Jesus that we pray. Amen.